0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's special episode of Once Upon a Crime. As you know, if you're caught up with episodes of Once Upon a Crime, last month's series was titled Live Streamed Crimes. In this series, I detailed cases of people who perpetrated crimes, recorded them, and then aired them to the public in real time as they were happening. Two of these crimes happened to be mass shootings. The Arizona Mall shooting was the one I covered in uh, one episode, and the other episode was the Christchurch New Zealand mosque shootings. While mass shootings in other countries like New Zealand are much less common, unfortunately they're quite prevalent here in the U.S., and because it has been such an issue for us here in the States, it's something I've been quite interested to learn more about, why they occur, like who the perpetrators are, what are their motivations for doing this kind of crime, you know, just in the numbers that we see. And most importantly, how can we reduce the number of these incidents to keep the public safe? Or what have we learned about these types of crimes that may inform us, whether that's policy or safety protocols put in place, things like that for the future. So. With all of those questions in my mind, I was very excited to learn about a new book that really dives into this subject at length, and it has a lot of great information and a lot of great insights. It's titled, The Minds of Mass Killers, Understanding and Interrupting the Pathway to Violence. Its author is Siobhan Scott, and she is here with me today to help us understand this phenomenon of this type of crime and perhaps provide some answers to some of these questions.
2: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: So first of all, I want to say um, hello and welcome, Siobhan.
0: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks. So the first question I had, because I'm you know, looking at this book, it's it's quite detailed. There's quite a bit, pretty much anywhere that I flipped to when I first opened the book, there was... All these different cases, all kind of broken out into different portions of researching this type of crime in, in particular. And there's quite a lot to it as I'm going through is things that I hadn't even thought of um, are in there. So maybe you could start by just telling us how you came to write the book, like what was your interest on in the subject and what led you to do so much research about mass shooters in general?
0: Wonderful. Yeah, I have been um, a psychotherapist for over 30 years now. And during that time, I've worked really extensively with clients who have been victims of crime as well as perpetrators of crime. So literally thousands of people, different cases in different agencies and in my private practice. And what's become clear to me over the years is that most of the time, violence is preventable if we understand violence and pay attention to what's happening with people we could prevent it and this is also um, what we know from public health particularly mass shootings are considered a very preventable form of violence as a mom my kids were still teenagers during when columbine happened and i was Aghast and appalled, like the entire country was. And so since then, I I went into more forensic work and worked in um, an institution or state of California job where I went into institutions for the criminally insane and did intensive therapy and case management with people who had committed mass murder. So I learned a lot about it over the course of the past 20 years. And the catalyst specifically for the book was in summer 2019, when there were three mass murders that happened within hours. One was in Gilroy, California, and then we had El Paso, Texas and then Dayton, Ohio. And those three happened boom, boom, boom with very similar perpetrators in each case. And I am very active on social media, on Facebook, and I saw misinformation everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I kept trying to correct all the misinformation and all the myths that I saw. And some of those were, well, we don't know why this happens. This is senseless. These People just snap, they were all bullied, and there's nothing we can do, we're helpless. And these are all myths. And I, of course, am passionate about violence prevention. We can do better as a culture. And so I sat down and wrote a Medium article, just kind of tossed it out there in about 15 minutes, put it online, and it got a lot of um, circulation and people found it, oh wow, this is a different perspective. So um, about three months after that I was contacted by my publisher, one of the editors, and they said we're really interested in what you had to say about this topic, would you consider writing a book for us, so it kind of fell into my lap, it was, um, it was something I was already concerned about very passionate about and then I was made that offer, which very seldom happens with books, and spent two years, a significant amount of time, just gathering data to support what I knew. You know, being a clinician, I'm primarily a clinician, not a university-based researcher. But of course, I attend forensic conferences and study constantly and am fascinated with the neuroscience of crime, all of the above. And so then I just compiled this massive compendium of knowledge and tried to make it readable for just an average person without all the psychobabble.
1: You know, it's funny you mentioned Gilroy because that was one of the things as, as I started reading the book and you brought up Gilroy. I was really surprised to to see that one in there because Gilroy is my ba- in my backyard here. I'm in San Jose, California, yes. so it's right right yes. um, south of here. And it's a very small town. It's a, a very small population. It's not like a you know, big city and it doesn't have a ton of crime. So that was a real
0: anomaly. It was really shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived for 25 years in San Luis Obispo County, California. And every time I went to the Bay Area, which was often, I went through Gilroy and stopped in Gilroy. So I was very familiar with the Garlic Festival. Mm-hmm. And that you know, when it happens in your own community, it really is shocking. And then we had one just before that we had had the one in Thousand Oaks, which was live streamed. I mean, yeah, there have been just so many, it's increasing so much. And most of them have happened in the last 20 years. But even in the last five years, those mass killings, particularly that are Hate based against different races, different religions and gender, particularly women, specifically, this is scary, you know, and it's really alarming. And that's why I just felt this compulsion. We've got to do better.
1: Right, yeah, you know, it, and that's the thing when you're talking about like most of them have happened in the in the past 20 years. I'm going to talk a little bit about you know maybe why that's so. But one of the things that jumped out at me as I was doing the research and then I was reading um, your book about the cases is that almost exclusively they are perpetrated by one person. These uh, mass shootings, and of course the one that we think of as kind of like the catalyst that kicked off this whole mass shooting, you know, epidemic was uh, Columbine. And of course that was yes. too. So, so I started yes. kind of looking and saying, well, wait a minute, what I really not thought about it, but it seems like, you know, there's gotta be a very, that must be very rare. So that was one of the questions I had yes. about that, you know, like, is there more or they, th- cause I couldn't find any, to be honest, that was more than one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I can only find, and again, data gathering data is really complicated because journalists, um, you know, the Washington Post keeps a database. Mother Jones magazine keeps a database. Mm-hmm. Then we've got the FBI. We've got the Secret Service. And we've got all kinds of forensic researchers mm-hmm. and, and different independent violence researchers. And everybody defines a mass killing a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so when you mentioned the one in um, Glendale, Arizona, that one isn't even included in the databases because he didn't kill over four people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they only make it into the databases if there's four people actually dead. Whereas as I look at it from a clinical point of view, maybe the um, gunman is a really bad marksman. So he hits one person, but his intent was to kill as many as he could. From my point of view, that still counts. But out of the data I can find, there were only four where there were two people involved in, in the crime. Columbine being one, There had actually been, Columbine was in 99, there had been one the year before in Jonesboro, Arkansas in 1998, and that was actually fascinating because it was an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old who shot up their elementary school, and the 11-year-old was actually the dominant partner. And they had 13 firearms, three semi-automatic weapons. That all came from the 11-year-old's home. It was particularly horrifying because they pulled the fire alarm to get the kids out of their classrooms. And that's happened subsequently on other occasions. But yeah, rather shocking. Um, And then we had Columbine, again, two friends, both males. And then there were two more, one in 2015 in San Bernardino, California, and another one in 2019 in Jersey City, New Jersey. Both of those were interesting because they were a couple. Um, San Bernardino was a married couple. And again, there's one dominant partner, the male was considered the one that, you know, the woman would not have done this without the husband. And then in um, New Jersey in 2019, it was also a woman and her boyfriend and the same thing. The man was particularly the, the instigator and the killer and the woman went along as an accomplice. So we know of four. Wow. I mean, talk about rare, a couple. That's very, very, very unusual. And certainly, I think you had probably a very interesting couple relationship, probably where the, the woman was very dominated. Going back to Columbine, um, you know, we're doing the analysis after the perpetrators are dead, so of course we can't say for sure. But the consensus among clinical people is that Eric Harris was the psychopath, Mm -hmm. and he was the primary instigator. And even though his accomplice was obviously a disturbed person in many ways, no happy person, no happy well-adjusted person goes out and commits mass murder. um, That. Klebold would not have done the crime without Harris. Would Harris have done it without him? Quite possible, we, we don't know. But there can be a synergistic effect and there certainly was with the two of them where they got together, planned for a year, made their videos, turned it into this kind of um, game that they focused on and spent a lot of time as friends fantasizing about it. So it, it can happen, but yeah, not the not the norm. You also think about it, like how, what are the
1: odds of finding a, sec- a second person who would even entertain that kind of a thought, much less plan it and yes. carry it out? I mean, that's. Yes.
0: Got to be an exactly extra odds, yeah. and and most of the time, you know, there so many cases are interrupted, and they're interrupted because somebody told somebody told either law enforcement or they told an adult or they told a school personnel that interrupted the um, process, the pathway to violence before. Um, A crime happened, which, of course, is our goal. Let's let's interrupt way back. But usually it's a peer and usually it's a peer who says, you know, he's always been a little violent and he's always talked about things, but now he's got a hit list. I'm not going along with this. I'm going to say something. And that's, of course, the ideal. And most of the time what happens is people do not validate it. You know, they they try to 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 do something to stop it.
1: Right. You're talking about interrupting. I was just, it came to mind. Uh, there was a case here. Gosh, it wasn't too long after Columbine. I don't think maybe a, a couple of years, maybe where it was here at De Anza college. which is a community college here in the suburb of San Jose in a, a, a town called Cupertino. And uh, yeah, there was a, there was a guy who was planning to do a mass shooting at the community college and it only got interrupted because apparently he took a bunch of pictures of his arsenal and himself with the weapons and yes. all this stuff yeah. that was in the days where you sent the photos to the lab to be developed.
0: Right. And the lab, uh, the,
1: the lab person, you know, that was developing the photos saw them and call, contacted the sheriff's department. and uh, And
0: that's, that's yeah. absolutely wonderful. If, if everybody who saw something like that would would be on top of it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a fifth grader, you know, or an 11 year old or your brother-in-law, you know, it's yeah. like, we really need to say, you know, see something, say something, it's just really important. And, you know, the majority of times people make threats, they fantasize, they don't follow through on it, but we never know in advance who may follow through right. and it it can, it can be one intervention from someone that stops it. So it's just incredible. Important that people report. Yeah, it kind of it reminds me of the Christchurch shooter.
1: There was a whole bunch of red flags there before that happened. Yes, a whole, bu- yes. a whole series of them, and his family. A whole series of red flags. Every you know, people around him, and I don't know. I think people just the brain doesn't want to believe
0: that that's actually a threat. Right. Something. Right. There's a lot of denial and minimizing and, and people, you know, will think, oh, it's a joke. And often the, the perpetrator would be perpetrator will say, I'm just joking, you know, haha, this is so funny. But there are almost always red flags and and almost always the people closest to the perpetrator are aware of them whether they take it seriously or not and when we look at sandy hook you know the ultimate tragedy mm. killing five and six year olds in their classroom he was telegraphing murder of children going back to his fifth grade year he wow. was writing these awful gruesome stories about the murder of children and interestingly in one of his stories the um, child murdered his own mother, which is ultimately what ended up happening. So we have to pay attention to those things.
1: Yeah, there are a few cases like that, where they either be usually before, it'll be they'll, you know, kill somebody in their family, or maybe the entire family and then and then go on and, and commit their their the crime that they had planned for as well. So I don't, very often. Yeah, yes. that's Yeah, that's Wow. <laughs> Obviously, there's some Something going on, and you kill a family, it's like, okay, that's it. You know what I mean? But then to continue on and actually now kill strangers and random people, it's hard to even know why there's no stopgap in their brain to say exactly, you know, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's when we look at the the internal, what's going on internally for a mind that seems so different than the rest of us? Is it mental illness? Is it a personality type? Um, and you know, it can be both and one or the other, but clearly this is a person who it's more important for them to make a name for themselves or express something you know, dramatic mm-hmm. with murder than it is to have empathy and compassion for other human beings. You know, there's just a, a missing piece there.
1: Right. And that was one of the question I had, too. So there's the motivation factor. And it seems like there's a lot of common denominators as far as motivation when we're talking about this kind of a crime. Reading in your book, the research would show that most mass killers are young adult males. And that hold a grudge specifically. Yes. And this could be either a personal grudge or at society in general. I think a lot of the ones that we hear about are about society in general. But there are the ones you included, some that had started because of a domestic violence incident or something, marriage breaking up, a personal grudge against maybe women because their marriage is breaking up or something like that. But then extrapolated into something you know bigger can you give kind of examples of those two types of motivations so you know like i said for reference i covered the the Christchurch mosque shootings case and those had two similar but different at least where the you know, where the grudges lie for these these shooters
0: yeah. We call it injustice collecting. That term came from the FBI. And that's the person that their uh, thinking pattern becomes usually in childhood, very focused on everything anybody does to them that they think is, is not right. And there are other personality factors that all go together with that. But the injustice collecting is is the person who begins to develop grievances. Like the Isla Vista killer in 2014, he, right, before he committed his murders, he mailed out a 137-page manifesto of every grievance going from his birth forward that he felt had been done to him. I mean, he named kids in elementary school that he felt didn't treat him right, family members, his stepmother who didn't let him play enough video games. She was one of the people on his hit list. It was just bizarre that his whole thinking revolved around all the things that people have done to me. And this, of course, became a monster and it became his identity. And then he eventually settled on women, because these hot girls that he talked about so often did not present themselves to him for sex. He had no awareness that, you know, usually sex comes out of a relationship with somebody. And usually you start by being nice to people and talking and all these things that he seemed to miss that part. It's like they're supposed to present themselves for sex. And so that was the ultimate catalyst, and the target was the sorority girls. Mm -hmm. But before that, he had compiled this list of grievances that went lifelong. And he did kill other people, of course, rather than just the attempt that he had against the sorority girls. The door was locked, and he couldn't get into the sorority house. So then he just went for anybody he could find, including he killed his two roommates and another college acquaintance, and then just people randomly on the streets in Goleta. but it can, it can be very personally focused. There were a couple of church shootings um, where it had started with a domestic violence incident in the home. And then because the wife and her family were very involved in the church, then it spread to the church mm-hmm. where the perpetrator then went to the church and started shooting people there. Um, so those would be more along the personal lines. But you see the same personality type, even with uh, like the New Zealand mosque killings or the people who shoot up the the Jewish temples, Um, they pick a target and it's sort of like they start scapegoating. Mm But they're still taking all the things about their life that they think are unfair. And then they they say it's as in El Paso, it's the Mexican immigrants who are taking our jobs and they latch on to one group. And, or you know, so many of them have targeted Muslims and it's the blame for all the things I don't like about my life. All the ways that I feel like I'm a personal failure, rather than accepting any responsibility for that, it becomes this scapegoat. And that's what they focus on. So there's a lot of distorted thoughts that go on. Some of them create this
1: whole almost philosophy around it. Yes. That's, that's huge. Yes. You know, like, and, and everything. Huge. Is, yeah, it's connected to everything else. And all of this, you know, is my justification for you know, doing something. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so he yeah, is- they
0: present themselves as heroes and that they're doing this wonderful service and it can get incredibly elaborate. The um, killer in Norway who took out like 79 little kids on that island and shot over 200 others who did not die, which was just an appalling um murder. He sent out a 1,500-page manifesto that he spent 10 years writing with this uh, fantasy of him as a Knight Templar. And it was basically this entire philosophy and this structure for how to drive all Muslims out of Europe. And I mean, talk about spending 10 years in this fantasy world, creating this document. Um, Yeah, this is a different, different way of walking through life in a different way of being in the world.
1: Yeah. And that was the other thing, as I was uh, researching the cases that I covered, I, I noticed that there was these shooters were pointing to the actions of shooters before them, Almost like, like venerating them as this, you know, these heroes, they were saying they were inspired by them and they would even quote some of their writings, almost like it was like their Bible that was telling them that this is why it was justified for them to do the same thing. So the Christchurch shooter did very specifically name the Oslo Norway shooter that you were just talking about as kind of an inspiration. And then the Walmart shooter in El Paso said he was inspired by the Christchurch mosque shooter. Right. And then we have the Isla Vista who identified himself as incel. So we had a whole bunch, including the one that I just covered yes. at, at, in Glendale, Arizona, that quoted the Isla Vista killer. So do
2: exactly. we see this in
1: in any other kinds of, of crimes? Because this just seems very odd to me that this happens.
0: Yeah, I I don't think we see it so often in other kinds of, ki- kinds of crimes, if at all. Um, and I think one of the things about public mass killers is the performative quality, which is why now that we have technology that allowed them to broadcast live, they really see themselves as stars of their own little fantasy action movie. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of narcissism. The three personality qualities that, that you see at play often with these guys are narcissism, psychopathy, and paranoia. And what you're describing, how they copy each other, and they'll refer to each other as knights or saints or heroes in some way. And it's this desire to be better than the last one, to have a greater kill score. We call that gamification. The Sandy Hook killer actually had a seven-foot by four-foot spreadsheet in nine-point font. Imagine the data that he had compiled. He had spent years compiling data about every mass killing that had ever occurred, where it happened, details about the perpetrator, and what kind of weapons used, who the targets were, how many killed. This is an interesting way to model your life, again, but the, the goal is generally they want to top the kill score of the people who have come before them. So I don't think you'll ever see a public mass killer who has not been influenced by the those who have come before. That seems to be the common thread. And it's the performative, the narcissistic aspect, the look at me, I want to go down in, in life. I want to be dead, but I'll go down in fame, you know? So, yeah. And part of it too is
1: because there is such... Um, you know the media covers it, and they're getting all this attention. I'm re- recalling the the one in Arizona that I just covered. He starts with the live streaming in his car before he goes out and starts to shoot in the mall. And the first thing he says is, "I'm going to be the Westgate shooter." So yes. he's giving himself a and name already. And he was already. so
0: calm. Yeah, giving yeah. himself a the, name. One of the identities. Yes, yeah. One of the myths is that these guys are so traumatized and upset, and generally. They're very calm Mm -hmm. and they're maybe in an elevated mood when they're actually doing this. Sometimes they're angry, but they feel powerful. They're enjoying the experience which again, you've got a different type of person who can commit mass murder and kill little kids and kill you know, people they don't know. There's absolutely no reason from our point of view to be in a, a fairly good mood state at the time. And yeah, he was um, an interesting one. I saw that one shortly after it had been live streamed. I saw it on Facebook, a clip, fascinating.
1: When I started looking at these, the, and I'm thinking, man, they're they're live streaming these things. And of course, first of all, you have to have the technology to do that. But that totally makes sense, you know, where this is the way they're going to make a name for themselves. It's yes. a one and done because, you know, they know that that's it. Either they're going to be arrested and taken alive or they're going to be killed or they're going to kill themselves. So it's different from like a serial killer who doesn't want to be caught because he wants to keep continuing right. his crimes. This is something right. that they're like, no, this is it. You know, this is my one shot. My claim to fame is to create my this My claim chaos. to fame. Mm-hmm.
0: Better to be infamous than ignored. And that was an actual statement from the Isla Vista killer. Wow. Better to be infamous than ignored. And and there's also a bit of an adolescent fantasy. It's really common for adolescents, you see this with suicide, that they think they're going to be watching from somewhere. I mean, you know, if you tried to pin them down logically, you'd say, "What? What are you thinking here?" Mm. But it's it's really common that sometimes, you know, there's this suicide uh, in order to make other people feel guilty. You know, um, commonly seen if a girl breaks up with a guy, and this is, you know, goes into adults as well. But often with teenage boys who kill themselves, a girl has broken up with them, and it's almost like I'm going to really punish her by doing this it's like you're going to be dead you're not going to be watching people suffer but it's sort of like I'm so invested in seeing people suffer I'm going to kill myself so we see a bit of this I think sometimes with the teenage mass killers it's like you're not going to be watching your fame here but with the Columbine um, guys they were actually joking about which movie directors in Hollywood were going to be doing their story. Would it be Spielberg or Tarantino? You know, and they thought this was funny. So the fame, this comes from the narcissistic personality traits where it's so important to be recognized and venerated.
1: I I had a question about that. Have you been able to distinguish what maybe is different about maybe the psychological makeup of somebody who goes in and already knows that once I get cornered or once I can't kill any more people that I'm going to kill myself and those that basically put their hands up in there, like uh, the one in in the Westgate mall. They're coming and he lays down, put his hands up. You know, he wasn't going to. Well, of course, he also had a jammed gun. He didn't seem like he was suicidal. You know, is there any difference between the ones that are suicidal and the ones that aren't? That, you know, is it they want to continue this fantasy where they're going to be talking to reporters? I mean, what was there anything specific?
0: That's a really good point. I think sometimes they do see that um, the Norwegian guy in particular, he did not intend to kill himself. He did not intend to die. And he was fairly certain he wouldn't die because he was on that island. And he in fact called and said, okay, I'm done now, I'm giving myself up, and turned himself over to law enforcement. But the agenda was to grandstand after the fact, to have media attention at the trial, and to be alive, to watch his own fame and glory. You know, so sometimes it's that, the thought that I want to be around to witness you know, my fame. Sometimes they believe that they're going to be killed by the police. Mm -hmm. And so they may be unsure, am I going to shoot myself? And then they sort of chicken out when it comes down to it at the end, Mm -hmm. they just don't kill themselves. And some really legitimately believe that the police are going to kill them. So suicidality does tend to be woven in for most of them. Mm -hmm. And when it's not, there's usually the desire to be around and watch the aftermath.
1: So, if you're thinking of the the two psychological, I'm thinking of kind of like the depressive, somebody who's dealing with a lot of depression and it's like it feels hopeless and comes up with this idea that this is the only way that I'm going to amount to anything, I guess, in my life or something like that. And the other the other side where it's uh, it's not that it's the narcissistic. I want people to know who I am. Can you tell the difference between those two when you're looking at mass shooters? Or is it kind of a crapshoot, like it could be either or?
0: Exactly. And in fact, I think it's more likely that it's it's a blend of both, you know, because when a, a lot of people, particularly men, are depressed, it manifests as anger. It manifests as rage where women are more apt to be depressed and go into sadness, men will become aggressive. And so for some of them, there's clearly the depression is a really strong theme. For others, the narcissism is the stronger theme, you know. And with the narcissist, there can also be a lot of anger because they're very invested in being recognized as special. And when they're not recognized as special, in other words, the the girl. Are not throwing themselves at them the way they think they should be. They get very enraged and very angry and prone to striking out. So you can have that thread of depression mixed with narcissism. And then you throw in a little paranoia. You know, there are paranoid personality traits generally seen. And that's where. Other people are doing things to me or the fact that I can't go to college and get a good job is because of Mexican laborers, which is, of course, absurd. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's this paranoid quality mixed with disappointment, sadness, depression, which can look like aggression. And then you can have psychopathy, which is the cold, calculating you know person we usually think of as as the killer or the criminal but they're manipulative they don't have guilt and they're very adept at Uh, We call it impression managing, you know, hiding their dark side. And so very often you get this perfect storm of a blend of these traits, and then you combine an internet culture where this is normalized and they get into groups online focused on hate, whether it's hate against minorities, hate against Jews and Muslims, or hate against women, and then they become more and more set cognitively in their thinking style.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because that was something that did come up up in the research on the cases I did, is they were all very um, invested in, you know, whether it was following different things on YouTube or Facebook or different groups online, and really just solidifying that worldview um, and exactly, yeah, and adopting. yeah, they their stay
0: own. In, in clusters of groups online where they don't ever hear alternate points of view. Mm-hmm. And with so many kids, connected and using the internet freely with no parental supervision, they get into really scary things. They can go into really dark places online. It's super easy to find these things. And a lot of times kids stumble into these things without even actively looking for it. And it's um, a reason that parents really need to know what their kids are up to online, which I realize it's hard to be a parent in the information age. It's hard to monitor your kids. I had a hard time when my kids were young. Fortunately, it was before smartphones. So it's much harder now. But this is why we're seeing an increase in hate crimes, in racial crimes, um, an increase in crimes against women, crimes against Asian Americans. It's internet fueled it's just incredibly important this is one of the things that we can do is de-platform hate sites you know get hate sites down we can do a better job of monitoring and the final chapter of my book i go through all these you know it's the longest chapter it's the list of all these things we can do and it's not easy to interrupt this but it can be done if we all you know do something and do our part and that's what i'm hoping people will hear
1: yeah and on and on the the personal level of people at at you know home with teenagers, preteens, even you know it's younger and younger that people are online and finding these things. I guess some parents maybe have a squeamishness about it, but others are like, nope, i I make sure I check my kid's internet history. Um you yes. know, and if you see anything that that you know it might be a red flag or just something concerning to have a conversation, you know, it doesn't mean you have Definitely. to like uh, oh, I got to lock down, you know, the internet or whatever, Um, because that's how, you know, come on, that's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, it's, right. it's everywhere. Uh, it take it with their phones or whatever. It, it, it's not going to happen, but at least it be having conversations about it and talk about what are they thinking? How are they, what are they believing? What are they talking about with their friends? What are they talking about with people
0: online? Exactly. You know?
1: And just have those conversations. Yeah, open-
0: Mm-hmm. Open communication and being emotionally bonded, you know because having a happy satisfying life with lots of close good interpersonal relationships with your family with lots of good friends, lots of healthy activities going on, those are all protective factors mm-hmm. you know because I always go back to kids with a satisfying relation relationship and a good life and lots of things they enjoy are not going to be motivated to commit a, a mass murder. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I think it's our job as parents to do our best, to have have our kids have great relationships, good communications, healthy friends, positive activities going on, not leaving them in their dark bedroom with the windows covered for 14 hours a day, doing who knows what online. Yeah.
1: do You know, teenagers are very secretive, right? They kind of like go yes. into their own little holes and you don't know what's going on. And the more you try to ask them, the less they want to talk to you. One exactly. of the things though, I think that would be kind of something to pay attention to is we know we were all teenagers once and everybody goes through a lot of things during that time period. If your teen is presenting like everything's great and fine and they have no problems at all, but yet you see that they're isolating or they're not no longer talking to the friends they used to talk to or no longer involved in the activities they used to, but they're still saying everything's fine, everything's fine. Everything's not fine you know, I agree
0: completely. Yeah. 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 One of my other passions is trying to get more mental health therapists in public schools. Mm -hmm. You know, we have very few, a few school districts, um, but the majority of school districts in our country don't have any access in the schools to, you know, we have academic counselors, but not therapists who are mental health professionals. And I would just love to see more mental health therapists in schools, because often kids are not going to disclose to their parents. You nailed it. And teachers, I have a lot of friends and clients who are teachers, and I hear so often from them, I see a kid I'm worried about. I see a kid who's isolating. I see a kid who's had a behavioral change or has written these kind of questionable stories, you know? But I don't have anywhere to refer them. I don't have any way to get help. And so, sometimes they've talked to the parents and the parents aren't interested in getting help for the kid. And so I think that's another another really important thing we can do is, you know, take, take mental health in our schools seriously, and just have a therapist who's available. So a, a teacher can make a referral, you know, because if it's a good therapist and they relate well with kids, Often, I mean, I've certainly had a lot of kids referred to me over the years who had made, I'm going to go Columbine threats at school, and then they get, you know, sent out of school until a therapist sees them. And I have been that therapist. And, you know, a good therapist can often work to get a kid on a healthier pathway. So that's an important thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and even even like bringing the these kinds of I mean, and I don't know, I've been out, my kids have been out of school for a while. And I'm I'm, I'm hoping that this happens in some schools or, or more than than not is where they're having these conversations within the classroom about, you know, yes. things like this, things like, you know. What people, how people are feeling and beliefs, and maybe things that are on the internet, or there's all kinds of things that even younger than teenagers are confronted with these days. And if nobody's talking to them about those, right? Then they're right. going to go down those rabbit holes because they're going to try to figure it out themselves. And we all know that we don't have the best <laughs> judgment at that age, or know what's you know exactly. what's, what might be um something that's detrimental to us. We we don't know. We just think, oh, okay, all all everyone on this site is talking about this, and they you know like what i'm talking about too
0: and so this are my this is my now my new friend group or whatever so exactly and yeah those would be the kind of things you know having support groups in schools where kids that are isolated or whatever or, or kids that teachers are worried about could get referred to group at school and could have a way to process feelings and a you know a place to go to talk and these would all be protective and all things that i think are very doable
1: yeah, because, I mean, we, we continue to see this this happening. It's so much now. It's almost a a, a non-story a lot of times when you're, you're getting the school shootings. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, another school shooting, another mm-hmm. school shooting. One of the last things I was going to ask you is, it seems like the big catalysts or what people paid attention to was when Columbine happened because maybe it was one of the biggest, one of the, the earlier ones um, that it happened. And the fact that so many of these shootings are in educational settings. Of course, you mm-hmm. know, maybe we're talking about The age of the people that are perpetrating them, or the mindset of the people that are in this age group, or that kind of thing? Um, Or is it more because it is a copycat of Columbine being the big one? or, Or is it something else?
0: Yeah, Columbine was definitely the cultural touchstone for for angry young men, you know, and that became the model. And I I think that is why we saw, certainly in the years after Columbine, most of the mass public killings were in schools. It is broadening now. We had the Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas in 2017, 67-year-old man, you know, very strange, very strange things. And, you know, increasingly churches... Gilroy Garlic Festival, other community places, even Walmart, the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. So that is one of my concerns as well. We're not just talking about school shootings anymore. We're talking about how can we, as Americans, go anywhere and be confident that we're going to be safe? You know, each mass killing. Um, even if we are not directly impacted in any way, you know nobody we knew it wasn't in our town, but we're all impacted because it affects our sense of safety and the way that we move through the world. Do we feel safe going to a large music festival or a concert venue? Do we feel safe in a large mall? There have been several mall shootings. And so i I think that um, unfortunately, well, school shootings are horrible, but unfortunately we're seeing these things broaden to other places too. And I think that will probably be a trend that continues.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so it, it has to be about, you know, figuring out how to how to address this before it happens because you can't lock down every place in the world, you know, and have no. security. And no. you can't even do it in, in every school or, I mean, what are you going to do? Supermarkets, no. there's going to be metal detectors in supermarkets. You have to do preventative. It has to be, you know.
0: It has to be preventive. That's the smart way to do it. You know, we always hear from the gun lobby, well, we'll just arm the teachers. Okay, so we're going to arm retail clerks, teachers, pastors. Uh, We've had shootings in gyms and yoga studios. We're going to arm yoga teachers. I mean, it just gets to the point where it's absurd. We'd have gun battles going all day long everywhere we go. That's not the country I want to live in, you know? So prevention um, is certainly key and catching, catching kids who are on the path Pathway, or even adults, you know, if we have a relative that we see these signs, you know, how can we intervene? Talking with a clinician. If our relative won't go to therapy, we can go to therapy and say, I have a person I'm concerned about. Can you give me some ideas on what to look for and how do I monitor the situation? When do I go to law enforcement? You know, we, we want people to open up about this and, and talk more and say something when they see it, something of concern.
1: Yeah, I think that's the first step is yeah, talk, talking to to somebody, getting information, getting educated about it. And the second, of course, is having the resources to be able to either yes. go to or send people to or provide for people who may need them. And that's the other hurdle, you know, is the, is the resources. Yes,
0: huge. Mm-hmm. We're not a cu- country that prioritizes mental health in any significant way, unfortunately. Yeah. And even though most of the majority of mass killers do not meet criteria for being mentally ill, clearly their thinking is aberrant. And if we want to call it criminal thinking or their personality factors or whatever, it, mental health therapists Can spot that stuff. And certainly, you know, the FBI, there's always 1 800 call the FBI. You know, we do need to use all the resources we have, but more law enforcement availability, you know, anonymous tip lines are important. People are more apt to make reports when they can do it on an anonymous tip line. Mm -hmm. So that's important. And then having more mental health services available for families and the the person who's showing danger signs and
1: also having law enforcement that can be trained in you know the mental health health yes. aspects when you're dealing with somebody who may yes. be you know uh, having some kind of mental crisis or something that they need to get some some help. Exactly. For because- when
0: when and how to know that this person is telling us all the right things? The Isla vista killer had posted some. Well, he posted a lot of disturbing YouTube videos. But his mother saw one two weeks before the murders, and she called law enforcement and said, "I'm really worried about my son." She didn't know he had weapons. Which he had been accumulating weapons. She had no idea because he lived in, you know, separate city. But law enforcement went out, talked to him at his front door. He said, No, I'm doing fine. You know, the videos are not to be taken seriously. I don't have any weapons. If they had gone into his apartment, they would have found the weapons. If they had looked at the videos and the things he was posting and his writings, they would have seen, okay, this is this is very dangerous. But they gave a cursory welfare check he said he was fine and what do we know about people who are psychopathic they're very good Mm -hmm. at playing normal. You know, the Columbine guys were in the uh, probation because they had committed a car burglary. They were in a probation counseling diversion program the year before they committed the murders. And they both got released early because they were such wonderful young men and nobody was worried about them. So, you know, we have to, as you say, be very aware, look at social media, look if kids are making websites, if they're posting things, we need to really pay attention to all that. And everybody work together as a team to create a safer society. That's what I want.
1: Yeah. I know going through this, you would say, well, my kid's not going to talk to me. You know what? Maybe they won't talk to you, but you can still talk and they they've got ears. They'll hear you, you know, and maybe, maybe some of it will land and maybe they'll be like, oh, okay, well, I was kind of feeling like that because otherwise they're just isolated in their own head, creating this own their own story that they're going to act out on, right? When there's, when there's no other input coming in. So maybe teachers and coaches and parents and siblings and aunts and uncles could be that other voice that comes in, voice of reason. And we say this uh, once upon a crime, when we are talking about not being a victim of crime is listen to that intuition you have. Listen to that little voice in your head says, yeah, I don't know. I just got a bad mm, vibe on this. Mm -hmm. Something maybe Mm -hmm. I need to pay attention to. Don't dismiss Mm -hmm. that. Because there's a reason you're getting that. We tend to dismiss it. It's like, well, I don't have any evidence, you know, or whatever. You don't have to have evidence when it comes to your kids or comes to your safety. You know, you you just, if you have a feeling, you know, what's the worst can happen? You're going to feel foolish that you, uh, you know, screamed in the parking lot and nobody was after you. I mean, you're going to feel foolish for 30 seconds. Who cares? You know what I mean? (laughs) If you feel like it, do it, you know. Uh, Oh, I ran away and that person looked at me like I was crazy. Well, so what? you know, it's like, maybe that kept you safe. So
0: exactly pay, pay attention. And <laughs> and it only takes one heart to heart connection, one good connection, I think for somebody who's going down the wrong path when they're young it can be a school teacher. It can be a neighbor. It can be an uncle, you know, because yeah, they, they tend to tune parents out, but Mm -hmm. somebody to make a connection with that kid and that could stop it. That could be the prevention. So it's really important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great positive note to, to end on because, uh, yeah, I know it it seems like a huge problem. We're like, Oh my God, like, you know, how do we even, but you know, it's like maybe everybody just has a little piece of something and you never know where that's going to land or how that might change how somebody's thinking or how they're feeling, or maybe, you know, make them uh, feel okay about reaching out to somebody and talking about something. Um, Yeah, definitely. This has been a really interesting conversation. And I want to suggest that people, if you're interested in this and you found this as fascinating as I did, that you want to pick up Siobhan's book. Again, it's titled The Minds of Mass Killers. So please let us know how they can find your book.
0: Um, It can be ordered from Amazon. it can be ordered from any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, or any small local bookstore, wherever people prefer to get their books.
1: Awesome. I really appreciate it. And this was very enlightening. Uh, really answered the questions I still had after researching a few of these cases. So yeah, there's definitely a lot in there. And uh, and I would suggest you guys check out the book because I think you'll really like it if you enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much once again. Appreciate you coming on and uh, yeah, giving us some education around this. I love all the psychology aspect of when you start talking about the different aspects that go into the psychology of these kind of shooters that I'm just like riveted, like, ooh, okay, yeah, let, let's find out what's going on here behind the behind the you know, behind the crime basically.
0: So. It's it's fascinating, and people think, oh, you know, we always hear, oh, this was senseless. Oh no, if you know the psychology, it makes perfect sense. It's not very nice, but it makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, and we do. We that's like that's to what we, we like learn. we like to make sense of
1: things. We at least we'd like to try. Yes. <laughs> so it really helps. We like to try. I think rather than walking around thinking, you know, that we're just, uh you know, all sitting ducks or something, at least we can exactly. try to understand. Exactly. It makes us feel like, uh, yeah, we can understand this a little bit more. So thank you so much. Yeah, for we're not powerless.
0: We can all do something. Yeah. Yes,
1: thank you so much for helping us understand once again just thanks for uh, being such an interesting guest thank you Siobhan thank you so much once again I'd like to thank my special guest Siobhan Scott author of the minds of mass killers I hope you enjoyed that discussion I really learned a lot and there's so much more in her book case studies of mass killers the psychology behind the motivation for these types of crimes totally up my alley if you'd like to pick up a copy of Siobhan's book, you can find it at all major bookstore websites and at amazon.com. I've put a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be good to one another.